I want to thank the worship team Sunday after Sunday. God uses them to usher us into the presence of God. And I thank you for that and what you're doing. And, I, you know, I don't, I don't think I could preach without worship first. <laughs> Just focuses our attention on the living God. Our, our church is about the worship and the word. Sunday morning, worship and the word. And when we come into contact in worship and we hear from his living word, then we cannot help but be changed, transformed. That's why we're here. For the last five months, we've been in a series on the life of Jesus called The Chosen. And each Sunday, we've looked at an event or a happening, a personal contact, a miracle that happened during the three-year ministry of Jesus. Mostly, we've been following the book of Luke and been following the general chronological order of events based on the Harmony of the Gospels by A.R. Fawcett. And we've interspersed some of Jesus' illustrative stories in the middle of that. These illustrative stories told by Jesus are called parables. Parables. Jesus used parables telling stories of everyday occurrences, things that the people of his day were very familiar with. Usually there was one main point to help answer a question or respond to a question somebody might have had. We're going to look at one of those today. There was a great theologian in the 1960s America who coined the phrase, love makes the world go round. Remember that? Some of you are older, love makes the world go round. You remember hearing that. During the 1960s, there was a great deal of preoccupation with love, love. Love and peace went hand in hand to describe the utopian ideals of joy, happiness, peace, and love. The free love movement proposed something that was really not love at all. It was only selfish physical gratification wrapped up in an illusion of love. True love, then as now, remained elusive. Does love make the world go around? Well, love is important, that we know. From television and the movies and internet dating to personal ads, we know that everyone is looking for love. Love is important. Might be romantic love, parental love, sibling love, relational love. Love is huge. Does the Bible say anything about love? Did Jesus ever talk about love? Yes, to both. In fact, Jesus had a lot to say about love. And his love was based on the Greek word agape, which definition is selfless love, sacrificial love. His was a different type of love than most people thought of back then. And he told stories about love, parables. And today, we're going to look at one of those stories, a story about spontaneous love. Jesus tells this story to answer a question and to make a point. And I'd like us to join the story, then ask the question, so what? What difference does this make to me? What's the point? As we look at spontaneous love, I'd like you to turn with me to Luke 10. Luke, the 10th chapter. And we're going to read verses 25 to 37, page 843 in the Bible in the rack in front of you. It will also be on the projection in front of you. Luke 10, 
25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus told a story. He said, a man was going down to Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him and passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil on, and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to the inn, an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for the extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell at the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Here we have a story within a story about spontaneous love. There, there are two real characters. There, there's a lawyer and Jesus, a lawyer and Jesus, and five hypothetical characters, a random man, robbers, a priest, a Levite, a car salesman, and a Samaritan. Actually, there was no car salesman. I just want to make sure you were awake still. You're listening. I want us to look at every character, see who we identify with, who am I most like? Who am I most like in this story? And what can I learn from each character? Six character sketches. Six character sketches. We start with the lawyer. The lawyer. This guy had been at the edge of the crowd for a long time. He had probably listened to Jesus before, maybe many times. And he was waiting for a chance to ask him a question. He wanted a chance to challenge Jesus. He wanted to challenge him. And it says, he stood up to test Jesus. He wanted to test him. This man was a religious lawyer. Is there such a thing today? Yeah, probably is. Okay. A religious lawyer. He was a scribe in charge of the Mosaic law. He was so into the law, the law was so important to him that he likely carried passages of scripture on pieces of paper and put them in tiny boxes that hung on his forehead. It was called the practice of phylactery. You could tell who these guys were. They walked around with these little boxes hanging down that had scriptures in them. And that's how you could tell a lawyer then. You know how you can tell a lawyer today? No, I'm, I'm not going to answer that. Okay. <laughs> but this lawyer's philosophy of life was summed up in two questions. Two questions. This was his philosophy of life. First, how can I earn my way into God's favor? How can I earn my way into God's favor? That's what he was really asking when he asked, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do? The emphasis was on doing or 
By doing what can I inherit eternal life? Eternal life was future in heaven and it was rewards reserved for those who were good and right in God's eyes. And he thought he could earn that right standing by what he did or what he didn't do. Many people today spend their life living that same philosophy. How can I earn my way into God's favor? What do I need to do? How much do I need to do? How often do I need to do it? And how can I know when I've done enough? The human tendency in all of us is we like to earn what we get. We want to earn it. Then we can take credit, okay? And we get self-satisfaction because I, I earned it. Also, we like to know what we're getting. We want to know, did I get an A on the test? Or did I pass my driver's exam? How much commission am I going to get on this sale? How many hours equals so much pay and composition? We want to earn and we want to know. So Jesus told a guy, if you want to eternal life by doing, if you want to do it by doing, this is it. Love God perfectly and love your neighbor perfectly. Love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. God's standard, he says, is absolute perfection. Has, has to do with our heart, our love, our affections. Demonstrated by actions, but not just our actions alone. Jesus says to the lawyer, and he says to us today, do you want to earn your favor with God? Be absolutely perfect. That's all. Just be perfect. It's a pretty high standard. And the lawyer, he was intelligent. He, he evidently saw that he came up short. So it says, wanting to justify himself, he asked, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? This is the second question of his philosophy of life. Letter B is, who am I obligated to love? Who am I obligated to love? He wanted to lower the bar from perfection to percentage. Okay? Perfection to percentage. When my youngest daughter, Brianna, turned 16, on that exact day, she took her driver's test. By Wednesday morning at 9 a.m., she had passed her driver's test and had her license. And by Thursday, she had my car. <laughs> What's wrong with this picture? That was my question. Now, Brianna did not get a perfect driver's test. Now, some people, when they take the driver's test, may, may pass with 100%. She got 92%, but she passed. Why? The standard for passing was 80%. It wasn't 100%. Not perfection, just a good percentage, not perfection. Good enough to pass. Well, the lawyer thought he could lower the bar of acceptance before God by lowering the bar from perfection to percentage. And of course, he would do this by being exclusive of those he could love and exclusionary of those he could not love. It's very convenient. I'm really good at loving these. I'm, I'm just going to exclude those people. That's why he asked, who am I obligated to love? Can I 
just love certain people like 65% or 80%? Can I love God 75% of the time? What is my minimum to pass? What's the percentage? It's interesting. The Jews actually split hairs over the great question of who their neighbor was. I'm not kidding. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Is it anyone within 100 feet of my property line? Up to 250 feet, but no further? Is it all the people in my neighborhood or my part of town or all the people in my social class or my ethnic background, my religion or my denomination, my political party, all who believe like I do, are those my neighbors? If you are left of center or moderate Republican, never Trumper, mega, whatever, I know I'm meddling, that's okay. Are those our neighbors? The Jews of Jesus' day had a lot of loopholes. They had a lot of loopholes of, of racial exceptions. And you know what? We're not all that different today. Do we categorize who our neighbors are? Who are we obligated to love? People like me. It's just people like me. The Jews had defined neighbor as an Israelite. No Gentiles. Absolutely no Samaritans. Gentiles were non-Jews and Samaritans were from interracial marriages. They did not qualify. In the 90s, Judy and I were pastoring a church in Tacoma, Washington. And we had quite a number of young couples that were, that were in interracial marriages. We, we thought nothing of it. Tacoma was this very diverse culture, a lot, of, a lot of races that were part of Tacoma. But we discovered that there was so much prejudice in Tacoma, 1990s now, against interracial married couples that almost all of these interracial married couples that were part of our church were attending interracial marriage support groups to deal with the prejudice and hate. We were, we were shocked. I had no idea. That, that's from a different part of the country. It couldn't be here. It was there. I was shocked. What is your prejudice? You don't have to tell me. Okay. Who am I obligated to love? You can see with this man, if you're going to look at him, there's no love. No love. The lawyer's philosophy of life was, how can I earn my way into God's favor? Who am I obligated to love? And then Jesus answers this question with a story, a parable. There was a 22-mile stretch of road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was called the Bloody Way, since robbers hid among the rocks, crevices, and caves. And literally, no one was safe on this road. Let's look at the second character in our story. Let's look at the man, the man. His status of life is, I am injured, hurting, and have been robbed. I'm injured, hurting, and have been robbed. You may be here this morning and I identify with the victim in our story. Has life stripped you of everything? Maybe you feel beaten up this morning. Maybe you're helpless. Maybe you're wounded. Maybe in lots of pain. Many people in our circle of acquaintances are in this state, our neighbors. Maybe they're not hurt physically, but emotionally or psychologically, spiritually empty in pain, half dead in their existence. 
This man represents our neighbors. Not very pretty. He's naked, he's bleeding, he's beat up, and he's unconscious. Our neighbors in this state are not very fun to look at, to be with. They're needy. This man needs love. He needs love. First one is no love. This is needs love. The third character or characters in the story are the robbers. The robbers. Their philosophy of life is, what's yours is mine, I'll take it. What's yours is mine, I'll take it. Most of us are not so blatantly selfish that people would be able to tell if we live by this philosophy. What's yours is mine, I'll take it. But many people live by the rule of take, gain, get, make a profit at another's expense. And getting isn't bad unless it comes at the expense of someone else. This is how we can rob someone else. For him, it was no love, no love. So the lawyer was no love, the robber was no love. Not very different. Now most of us would say, well, I'm not that bad. Okay, eh, okay, I agree. So let's move on to the next characters. Next characters. The priest and the Levite, number four. Their philosophy of life is what's mine is mine, I'll keep it. What's mine is mine, I'll keep it. These guys had schedules to keep. They had their reputation to protect. They wanted to protect their names, protect their assets. What would happen if this guy sues me if I try to help him? These guys practice, first of all, letter A, and this is a little bit messed up on your outline, but it's, it's up on here, right? Value judgments, letter A. Value judgments. This injured man is unworthy of my time. Who are they to judge at someone else's worth? But we do the same, do we? Judge the worth of others? Do we judge it? Is this person worth my time? Second, they practice exclusion, exclusion. These men excluded certain people from their social circles. They would never come into contact with the poor, the prostitutes, the sinners, the Gentiles, and people of other races or cultures. And evidently, the injured, the injured. Do we ever practice exclusion. This can be as obvious as hating a, a person of another race or as subtle as keeping to ourselves in our group, avoiding contact with or association with those people. And the third was fear of involvement. These men did not want to get involved in anything inconvenient or messy. And Jewish law, ceremonial law actually made a person unclean if they touched a dead person. And they didn't know if this person was dead or alive. So they said, I'm not going to touch this person. They placed more importance on their religious duties than helping a wounded, helpless, dying person. Jewish ceremonial law dictated cleanliness at the expense of a man's life. Do we ever put our religious duties ahead of ministry to the wounded and dying. I'm also speaking of it in a spiritual sense. Are we so busy taking care of church business, taking care of ourselves inside the church, feeding and nurturing the saints at the expense of reaching out 
to those who are wounded and dying. More, more concerned about keeping things comfortable for us that we forget about the, the unchurched or the spiritually seeking people. Do we come to church and pass by wounded? Do we come to church and pass the dying? Do we ignore the needs of our neighbors who are dying, going to a Christless eternity? What's mine is mine. I'll keep it. Philosophy of the American church. Preserve our resources. Hang on to what we have. Take care of our needs first. But it's not about us. It's about them. This philosophy also says no love. No love. What keeps you from spontaneous love? The fifth character in our story is number five, the Samaritan. The Samaritan. He's our unlikely hero, an unlikely candidate. He's a hated half-breed. See, Jesus constantly challenged the racial prejudice of the Jews and us today. Racial prejudice has a long history in our country. And whether it occurred in the days of slavery or it occurred with the immigration of Italians and the Irish, the influx of Asians primarily following the Vietnam War, to the Central and South Americans, Mexicans, maybe Muslims, Love for our neighbor knows no boundaries, racially, economically, or socially. I'm not talking about immigration policy and those things about the wall. That's a whole different thing. I'm talking about people that are in our country that desperately need Jesus. The philosophy of the Samaritan is, what's mine is yours, I give it. What's, what's mine is yours, I give it. This was true spontaneous love. It says he saw him. He was looking for people in need. He was alert to people in the side of the road. Side of the road. Based on this parable, there's a church in Seattle called Church by the Side of the Road. I think it was named after this parable. They were looking for people off the main road, by the side of the road. That was their mission. He had compassion. He had pity. His heart identified with this man. He could feel his pain. Compassion is not just feeling sorry for. Compassion is feeling sorry for it with the desire to relieve the pain. Then he took action. He sought to relieve his suffering. God calls us to see the hurting and wounded. They're all around us. To be alert. People who need help. It takes time. It takes attention. Have compassion. Feeling what they feel. Identifying with them. Taking action to do something to relieve their suffering. To point them to the healer, Jesus, who can relieve their suffering and actually carry their burdens. Spontaneous love. It's not, not planned. I'm going to go out and love people today. No, this is spontaneous Part of this man's action was immediate. The next was long-term. He took care of his immediate needs, then put him in the care of someone, offered to pay for his recovery. As a church, we need to function as a trauma center 
We also need to function as a rehabilitation center. And many of you are involved in helping work people through and mentoring and helping people get through the brokenness that they've experienced. I commend you for that. Bless you for that. There's a lot of that happening here. And that's a blessed thing to watch. Spontaneous love requires time, energy, money, and long-term commitment. It costs. It costs to love. Now, note here, Jesus didn't say, if you love like this Samaritan, then you will earn eternal life, God's favor. No, no. He already made it clear that we could not attain perfection and earn God's favor. Jesus wanted to teach them who to love. Who are we to love? How are we to love? Well, the final character in this story is Jesus. Is Jesus. His philosophy of life was perfect love. Perfect love. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Who is the neighbor to the wounded man? We know. The Samaritan. Have you ever asked the questions, how can I earn my way into God's favor? Who am I obligated to love? And what is your philosophy of life? What's yours is mine, I'll take it. What's mine is mine, I'll keep it. What's mine is yours, I give it. Spontaneous love. Perfect love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you show the reality of the religious world. You show what we all deal with. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us your sense of power, your sense of compassion, and that we would be a people who love spontaneously. Father, I thank you for the spontaneous love that is pouring through this congregation, through your people, and all that you are doing. And I just pray, God, that you would challenge us in a greater way for more love. In Jesus' name. Thank you.